Welcome to TopCast and episode four of The Science of Canon Kant. Although we're only at chapter three, previous episode was an introduction to this chapter. So I don't really need to do an introduction today. So I'm going to launch straight in to the reading. And Chiara begins in chapter three, titled Information, with uh, an explanation of what she's going to do in this chapter. And I shall read that. Quote, where I explain how information can be completely captured within physics with two counterfactuals, the possibility of copying and of flipping, where you encounter the counterfactual properties of universality and learn how it enables universal computers. And then we get into the main part of the chapter. And this first part of the chapter is a lovely description which sets a literal scene of things that she's going to discuss later on in the chapter. She begins, quote, When the night falls on Sentosa, a small satellite island of Singapore, a remarkable spectacle takes place. The best location to witness it is somewhere along the bridge connecting Sentosa to Singapore. That bridge is made of smooth wooden tiles. It also has a panoramic spot where one can rest, leaning on a balustrade while enjoying the view that spans the whole bay. As the twilight turns into night, distinctive kinds of lights and sounds fill the air. The surroundings gradually become darker and darker until the whole backdrop is pitch black, both the sky and the sea. At that point, the spectacle reaches its peak. Suspended several dozen metres above the sea, green-lit cable cars run smoothly through the air back and forth in constant gentle motion. Boats and ships move lazily across the bay, their signalling lights cutting through the darkness. The music from the bars on the shore spreads around, whispering in the warm equatorial night. Further back, in the distance, a lighthouse flashes, on and off, on and off. The objects populating that nocturnal landscape display extremely diverse behaviours, each explained by a different branch of physics. Cable cars, boats and ships are powered by engines, explained by the laws of thermodynamics. The music and its propagation are explained by the theory of sound. Sound is composed of waves of molecules of air which travel to one's ears and are then converted into electrochemical signals in the brain. Molecules are in turn composed of atoms and atoms are made of subatomic particles such as protons, electrons and neutrons. Light is explained by the laws of electromagnetism, Maxwell's equations. At the most fundamental level, all these phenomena are explained by quantum theory and general relativity, the two deepest explanations of physical reality we possess at present. Despite being so different in their specific details, those systems have something in common, which is not explained by any of the existing branches of physics. The music, the boat's lights, the lighthouse, they are all signals. They are capable of carrying information. This property is a key trait they all share, one that, contrary to what one might think, is possessed only by a particular class of systems in our universe. In a short while, I shall give you examples of systems that cannot carry information. What is the property that makes those systems, and many others like them, capable of carrying information? Answering this question involves counterfactuals, and it will keep us occupied in this chapter. It will reveal the way to express information as a fundamental entity in physics, and the fundamental physical laws that rule the physical system capable of instantiating information. This is crucially important, not only from the point of view of understanding the universe in a deeper way, but also because 
information and its connection with physics is at the heart of information technologies that could further revolutionize our civilization, such as the universal quantum computer that we will discuss in Chapter 4. At first, it may seem that information does not really have anything to do with physics. In fact, in everyday language, the word information is used to refer to all sorts of things. For instance, many systems contain information books, newspapers and magazines, emails and messages, the words we utter when speaking to friends and family, poems and songs and ballads. The biosphere contains information too, as I mentioned in Chapter 1, encoded in DNA molecules. But even though all those systems are plainly part of physical reality, it is hard to identify information with a particular physical system. Information looks more like an abstract entity, and it is hard to pin down its connection with physics. For a start, information does not have a specific embodiment, but it can be embodied by many diverse physical systems. Is it then some kind of property that systems have, such as, say, colour? That a laser light is green, for instance, means that the photons it emits, the quanta of energy it is composed of, have a particular frequency or energy content. Could information be something like energy or frequency? Not quite. Those are factual properties because they are specified exclusively by the system state at a certain time and in a certain location in space. But when it comes to information, the story is different. As I shall explain in detail, one cannot say that some systems contain information just by stating a full description of its state and its factual properties, because the fact that it does has to do with certain transformations being possible on it then what do we mean when we say that a computer or smartphone is carrying information? Rather than seeking to define information as a physical entity or as a property of physical systems, the key is to change our focus and ask a slightly different question. What is different in the state of affairs of a physical system between when it does carry information and when it doesn't? It is, as I shall explain, a set of counterfactual properties once we pin those down, we will have established what is required of a system in order for it to contain information and the connection between information and physics without ever actually having to define information directly. Just pausing there, my reflection. So this is um, a crucial point to make is that Kiara is saying that we don't need to define information if instead we pin down, as she says, what is required of the system in order for it to contain information. And that, of course, is Popperian. People get absolutely hooked on trying to define certain things in science. And definitions are misleading. Definitions are ultimately ambiguous. And also, if you're talking more philosophically, definitions are just a way to reduce philosophy to talking about words, which is not what philosophy is about. And it's certainly not what science is about. Science is not about trying to define precisely what any given physical thing happens to be. My favorite example is the electron. You can try and define what an electron is, but that definition is going to rule out what you're going to learn about the electron tomorrow. So it's going to be a useless definition tomorrow upon learning some new property about the electron because your previous definition can't possibly have included the knowledge that you're going to gain tomorrow, that you're going to create tomorrow. So instead, it's better to talk about understandings. And so we can have an understanding about information without needing to necessarily define it. We can say this system can carry information, this system can't carry information, and that gives you some insight into how to understand what information is, even if you can't put a precise definition on it. Moving on, and Kiara writes, 
Let's use a thought experiment to identify the counterfactual properties that a system must have to carry information. First, we take a system that can carry information, such as a lamp that can be used to signal. Then we gradually subtract its key properties until it stops being capable of doing so. At that point, we will know that the properties we removed in our thought experiment are necessary for carrying information. Suppose that you were standing on the Sentosa Bridge's viewing point at night and you had the task to communicate with an approaching boat using a lamp. The lamp is green, say, and it can be switched on or off. And the code of communication is that if the lamp is on, then the boat can proceed. If it is off, then the boat should stop. Now, imagine the colour of the lamp changed. Clearly, that would not modify its ability to convey the signal, nor would changing its shape or similar other properties of its state. But suppose now you modified some of its functionalities. For instance, suppose that once you switched the lamp on, it could no longer be switched off. Would this lamp work as a signal? Clearly no. Given that it cannot be in any other state, it is useless for signaling one of two alternatives. It has only one state available. Now imagine you wrap the lamp in a completely opaque covering, which does not allow the light to come through and to be seen at a distance. With this modification, the lamp would not be able to signal either because it could not be seen from the approaching boat. This example offers a lesson you can then generalize. The fact the light, when it is on, carries information is due to the fact that it could be set to a different value off and that the difference between on and off can be perceived by the approaching boat. Both of these properties of the lamp are counterfactuals. Abstracting from the example, you can assume or perceive a general, fundamental regularity in nature. Any system containing information must have these two properties. Property one is that it can be set to one of at least two states. For example, if it has two possible states, let's call them zero and one, generalizing on and off, these two states can be changed from one into another like this, one into zero, zero into one. This notation specifies the following transformational task. If given one, turn it to zero, if given zero, turn it into one. A machine can perform this task if it can indeed obey both these requests. I shall call this transformation a flip, a special case of a permutation. But if you're familiar with computer science, you will know that in the jargon of that field, it is called a not operation. The name could not be more appropriate. The operation describes exactly the behavior of someone with a contrarian personality. If you say yes, they will always flip your statement to its negation and say no and vice versa. Likewise, this operation flips the state of a system to zero if it is in one and one to if it is zero. We've already seen the flip operation appear in several places in that view from the Sentosa Bridge. It is in the lighthouse whose lamp flips its on-off, on-off pattern. It is in the signaling lights from the boats which also operate like switches. It is realized to a high degree of accuracy in any computer when a transistor switches on and off. It is even realized to a lower degree of accuracy in our brain when a neuron fires and then becomes quiet again. And as we have seen from the lamp example, it is the counterfactual property that is necessary to send the most elementary signal a binary one. Property two, required for some system to contain information, is that its states, for example on and off states of the lamp on the bridge, can be received and distinguished in some other location. For example, by the boat's communication system. This property is trickier to express. Still, it can be elegantly and fully captured by counterfactuals. It is the property of performing a copy-like operation. 
Remember that I already mentioned replication in chapter 1, which is a special case of copying. To see what copying is, we can dramatise the communication between the bridge and the boat by adding further layers of communication. Imagine that it is a foggy night and that even the strongest lamp can be seen at no more than 500 metres from the bridge. But the requirement is that it can be seen by boats that are at one kilometre from the bridge, along a particular straight path joining the bridge and the entrance of the harbour. One way to deal with this problem is for another boat to anchor at about 500 metres from the bridge along that path. If that boat has another lamp, which can in turn be seen from other boats approaching, then it can signal to them by setting its lamp to on or off, in coordination with the lamp on the bridge, just like the old-fashioned telegraph or beacon signalling. The communication is successful if, whenever the on state appears on the bridge, the boat sets its lamp to on too, and if, whenever the state of the lamp is off on the bridge, the lamp on the boat is also set to off. This process amounts to copying faithfully the state of the lamp on the bridge onto the lamp on the boat. The state of the lamp on the bridge is perfectly reproduced by the lamp on the boat. Pausing there, just my reflection. So here, what we're kind of saying is that we have this concept of information being an entity which can be flipped, so you can take a zero, turn it into a one, so you can negate it, as well as being copyable, without ever saying precisely what information is. So we're saying it has these qualities of being able to be negated and being copied, flipped and copied. Now, I'm skipping a quite a large portion here where... Chiara goes through in more detail precisely what a copying operation is at the fundamental level. And she also goes through the summary that I just gave you, that a physical system is capable of carrying information if it has these two counterfactual properties. The first one being it can be set to at least two states. The flip operation is possible. And two, each of those states can be copied. The copy operation is possible. And then she says, and I'll continue reading from this point, so here is the reason why information is a physical property. Whether or not some system carries information depends on whether the laws of physics allow for these two transformations on that system. If they don't, then the system cannot carry information. In a universe where no system had both properties, information would not exist. So whether or not information is permitted depends on whether the laws of physics permit certain kinds of counterfactuals. But it is not a property like having a certain colour or mass. Factual properties of a system. It is a counterfactual property because whether a system contains information or not depends on whether those two transformations can be realised on it. Through counterfactuals, you have arrived at the elusive connection between information and physics. Okay, pausing there, my reflection. Yeah, that, isn't that brilliant? So physics hitherto has always been about factual properties. As she says, things there like color or the frequency of light, mass or the number of electrons in a particular atom. These are factual properties. But information is a counterfactual property. It's something that could have been otherwise, whether or not these particular transformations can actually occur given a particular system. And as she goes on to say, quote, Systems with those two properties are information media. All information media, despite the differences, have in common the fact that those two transformations are possible on them. All the systems I mentioned in the Sentosa example are information media. They have those two counterfactual properties. The simplest information medium 
the fundamental unit of information, is a bit. It is an information medium with two possible states, zero and one. Its capacity is that it can signal at most two different messages. You can think of countless ways in which our universe can embody a bit. The lamp of our previous example, which can be on or off, an arrow that can point up or down, a coin resting on a table, which can show heads or tails, your answer to a yes or no question, and so on. Thinking in terms of information allows one to forget about all the differences in the physical details of those systems and consider them all as the same thing. A bit. The same holds for information media with higher capacity. Those that can hold more messages. They too can be thought of as made of bits. But not every system is an information medium. A good example is a memory in a computer that is full but cannot be erased. It is possible to read information out but not write new information in because no more space is available and reset is not possible. It was an information medium once but no longer. You could also have a case where information can be copied in, but not out. Have you ever tried to write something on the foam on top of a cappuccino or a beer? At first it looks possible, but the letters rapidly fade away to the point they can no longer be read. Neither of these two types of systems would be capable of carrying information because they do not have enough counterfactual properties. They are not information media. Pause there, my reflection. Yeah, they'd probably be information media for a very short amount of time for so long as whatever is written on top of that foam, let's say, lasts. But this does not fit Chiara's earlier description of knowledge and information, for example, as having a kind of resilience. So if the information meter is something that quickly dissipates, evaporates away, or is otherwise full, then we can't really talk about it as having the capacity to copy information. It won't persist long enough to keep the message or to keep the information such that someone can then take it away somewhere. Going back to the book, Kiara writes, One of the most striking properties of information media is that in that regard they are all interchangeable because information can be copied from one to the other irrespective of their physical details. I shall call this property the possibility to copy information from one information medium to another interoperability. For example, the information in a bit can be copied into any other bit irrespective of what physical system it is. A transistor, an arrow, a coin, or a switch. The music that has been recorded on old vinyl discs can be converted and copied into digitally encoded music on a flash memory. The sound produced by a voice can be turned into words stored in the transistors that compose the memory of our smartphone via voice recording. The thoughts in my head can now be faithfully copied on this page. They will then be copied into your brain and then possibly copied further into other brains or your notebook if you decide to write them down. All these information media are interchangeable or interoperable and information can travel among any of them without restriction. Pausing there, my reflection. This is also known as, and you, your ear should uh, prick up when you hear some of those examples there that she listed, as the substrate independence of knowledge. So, if I have some knowledge in my brain and I want to get it to you, there could be all ways in which I might try to do that. If you're on the other side of the world, one way in which I might do it is to speak. So the knowledge that's in my mind then becomes sound waves. But if you're on the other side of the world, me simply talking isn't going to get it there. But happily, the knowledge can be transmitted relatively faithfully from my brain to my vocal cords, vibrations of vocal cords, and then to vibrations of molecules in the air, and then I can pick up the phone and I can talk to you. 
or perhaps I'm already on the phone to you. And then those vibrations of air molecules get turned into vibrations of the diaphragm of a microphone that's in the phone, which then get turned into electrical signals, which then get turned into electromagnetic vibrations, which travel from here to the other side of the world, long story short. And then that system all happens in reverse again, then into electrical signals in the aerial, then into vibrations of the diaphragm of the speaker, and then into vibrations of air, and then into actually vibrations of the tympanic membrane of your ear and then into vibrations inside your ear canal and then eventually into your brain and so this is how this copying type process works of course once it gets into beyond i should say the ear canal then we have an issue okay then the issue there for a popurian is that we are guessing what is meant we are interpreting what is going on there so the process there becomes more complicated than simply copying the message from one medium to another because then we have the conscious attempt to create the knowledge anew which might be different to the way in which one person was already thinking of it so if i have a particular idea in my mind and i want to get it to you i can reasonably faithfully get it into uh, the vibration of air molecules via the way in which i'm talking the way in which i'm talking right now i'm trying to convey something to you and if i think i've made a mistake if i think that the words coming out of my mouth are not matching the thoughts i have in my head i can quickly correct myself uh until I think there is a, uh, to my mind, to my standard, a perfect match as close as possible between what I'm thinking and what I'm saying. And then the copying process happens very, very reliably between the vibration of this microphone here and what eventually happens at your end when you're watching the screen or listening to my voice coming out through speakers or earphones. All of that is going to be very reliable, but... Once those vibrations get into your ear canal, you then need to interpret what is going on, <laughs> what is what I'm actually really saying, what the knowledge is that Kiara had firstly, and I'm I'm and sometimes I'm interpreting this, right? And so some of this copying process is a process of interpretation, especially between minds. Because when we have minds involved, we have memes involved. And as we know from the beginning of infinity, meme replication is not as simple as copying. It's a little bit deeper and more complicated than merely copying, which is what is going on between the vibration of air molecules here um, and the vibration of air molecules that, are hap that is happening at your end, the, the, the replication of my voice. But the knowledge itself, which is encoded in that information in some way, is uh, more difficult to get from my mind to your mind than just copying, than just a chain of copying. Or insofar as it is a chain of copying, it is an extremely imperfect chain of copying between my mind and your mind because there's layers of interpretation. Let's go back to the book. Kiara writes, Interoperability is due to the fact that all information media have in common properties, the two counterfactuals I mentioned above, that transcend most of their specific details, i.e. whether they are photons, transistors, the spins of an electron, neurons, or switches in a lamp. In all these cases, when interested in the information processing abilities of these systems, we can abstract away their irrelevant details and simply talk about them as information media, considering their information-carrying attributes only. For example, up and down for an arrow, on or off for a lamp and so on. Now I'm skipping a bit here. Um, Kiara talks about the physics of interoperability and whether or not interoperability is possible depends upon physical laws. So 
the extent to which we can actually have this ability of information which is completely different in terms of its physical substrate is nonetheless able to copy the same information okay that is a property of our universe which could have been otherwise and then that, that leads into a discussion about the kind of physical laws that allow computers to exist at all and so there needs to be a physics of computation which we're also quite familiar here in this podcast series with and so i'm going to pick it up where kiara writes quote let me start with the link between computers and physics computers are embodied in physical supports they are made of information media typically billions of switches or transistors therefore they are ruled by the laws of physics in particular which computations a computer can or cannot perform depends on what the laws of physics permit. This connection between computation and physics was not fully understood until the 1980s with some of the pioneers of quantum computers. It was hinted at by imaginative thinkers such as Rolf Landauer, Paul Benioff and Richard Feynman. But it was fully expressed for the first time by David Deutsch and further developed by the masterful computer scientist Charles Bennett. A simple example of a computation is the addition of two numbers, which are encountered in Chapter 2. Its inputs are the numbers x and y, for example, 5 and 10, and the output is the number x plus y, for example, 15. That a computer is capable of performing a computation, such as addition, means that every time it is given the right input, the two numbers x and y, it is supposed to provide the desired output, the number x plus y, and it can do that over and over again. The set of all computations a computer is capable of performing is its repertoire. So, for example, a calculator is a computer that has addition, multiplication, subtraction and division in its repertoire. What decides the repertoire of the computer? The physical laws that rule its components. Under given laws of physics, for each computation that is physically possible, at least one kind of computer is capable of performing it. Pausing there, just going back to consider that claim there. Under given laws of physics, for each computation that is physically possible, at least one kind of computer is capable of performing it. That indicates the universality of computation in a universe. If something is physically possible to be computed, then there exists a computer in our universe that is capable of performing that, compute, that, that, that computation. But more than that, of course, for all the things that are computable in our universe, there is a single device, the universal computer, which can compute any possible physically computable thing. And Chiara goes on to say, by computer here, I'm not necessarily referring to something as sophisticated as your personal computer. I mean a special purpose computer, which has only a few computations in its repertoire. For example, the adder mentioned above, which can, as I said, output the number x plus y, given two numbers x and y in input, or a multiplier that, when given x and y in input, provides x multiplied by y in output. And then Chiara goes on to explain how we get from these special purpose computers to universal computers. So all you need is if, for example, you have something that can do addition, something that can actually perform that operation of x plus y, and something that can do multiplication, a different computer that can do multiplication, x times y, then all you need is a third computer that can talk to the first two and will be able to send the operation off to the adder or send the operation off to the multiplying computer. And so now you have a computer which can do essentially both operations because the other two computers that can do those single operations are 
part of its repertoire now. And so, of course, that leads to the idea as of universal computation, as Chiara writes, proceeding in this fashion, nothing stops you from imagining a computer that has all the physically possible computations in its repertoire. It is a universal computer. It can be programmed to perform any calculation that is physically allowed by certain physical laws. It so happens that the laws of physics of our universe do not forbid a universal computer. Computers such as our laptops and personal computers are universal in this sense. Another fundamental trait of computers in our universe is that all the computations in their repertoires can be realized by combining a smaller number of basic computations, which work like letters of an alphabet to compose words. This, too, is a peculiar feature that holds in our universe, but need not hold in general. For example, 3 is a number, 4 is a number. If we juxtapose 3 and 4, we find another number, 34. Any number can be represented in the decimal basis by juxtaposition of the numbers from 0 up to 9. Likewise, elementary computations can be composed with one another to realize all the computations permitted by the laws of physics. For example, suppose you perform the flip twice on a bit. You see that if the bit is initially 0, it is flipped to 1, and by applying the flip a second time, you obtain 0 again. Likewise, if the bit is initially 1, after two flips, it gets back to the state 1. So applying the flip twice to the same system corresponds to performing a different operation, in this case doing nothing, or leaving the bit alone. A set of computations that, composed with one another, permit one to recover the whole set of possible computations in the repertoire of the universal computer is called a universal set. When there is a universal set, any computation is reducible to a sequence of elementary computations selected from the universal set. These elementary computations are, in a respect, a bit like Lego bricks. Anything that is allowed in a Lego world, from cars to villas to pirate ships, can be decomposed into elementary Lego bricks of a few elementary different kinds, whose basic composition rules are fixed. Likewise, when there is a universal set, any physically allowed computation can be decomposed into a set of elementary computations from the universal set, sometimes referred to as gates, which can be composed according to fixed laws. When the laws of physics say that a universal set of computations is possible, we say that they display universality. Universality is a counterfactual property about what is possible, and it has sweeping consequences. It is universality that permits the existence of a universal computer, like the ones we use nowadays. That property was first grasped in the Victorian era. At that time, the inventor Charles Babbage proposed a scheme to build what he called the analytical engine. This would have been if realized, the first programmable computer, the ancestor of our modern ones, only far larger and made of brass mechanical cogs and wheels. Ada Lovelace, Babbage's collaborator and a brilliant mathematician, understood the universality of this machine, conjecturing in her notes that the analytical engine could be used to produce all sorts of information theoretic outputs, not just to compute functions. She even speculated that it could be used to produce sophisticated music. Unfortunately, Babbage's idea was not realized in practice for a lack of funding, and the property of universality was not studied until much later. It was Alan Turing, with his computing machine, who formalized the idea of universality in the 1940s. This concept was then sharpened and connected to physics by David Deutsch, who pioneered the universal quantum computer, which you will encounter again in the next chapter.
universal computers are capable of performing all the computations permitted by the laws of physics. Once a universal computer is constructed, all you need to do is to load it with the right program and it can simulate any other system that is physically allowed. This includes the biosphere with all its splendid richness of animals and plants and microorganisms, and in principle, it even includes your brain, together with thoughts and emotions. Pause there, my reflection. Yes, but we don't know what the program is, and this is the great mystery of things, and is the central problem of artificial general intelligence, despite what you hear elsewhere outside of the circles of uh, people like David Deutsch, where people, other people think that what we need is faster hardware or more memory that these systems like the internet as they grow eventually become self-aware in some way that that's all it that's all you need because isn't that what happened with us isn't what happened with our brains just the slow accumulation of complexity and by random chance we end up with the capacity to create explanatory knowledge perhaps but in our case as human beings trying to program AGIs, if we want to do that, we need to know what the program is. Simply randomly putting together um, components of hardware in a computer, it's not going to cause the thing to come alive. Again, despite what you might see in certain science fiction representations of what's going on here, you need a program. You need an algorithm for how it is that creativity and knowledge creation is actually done. Okay, I'm skipping another part here. And Chiara talks about a, a science fiction world. Um, but basically, I think that the, 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 um, uh, the comparison to dark matter that she makes here is probably just as informative. The idea of dark matter is that perhaps there is this matter out there in interstellar, intergalactic, otherwise almost empty space. And this matter is the thing that causes galaxies to rotate faster than what they should, given the amount of luminous matter there. So we assume there is, seems to be matter that we cannot see there. It's very weakly interacting, by which we mean we can't see it, so it doesn't interact with light, and it doesn't even appear to interact with strong and weak nuclear forces. The only thing that it interacts with, apparently, is gravity. Such a kind of matter doesn't appear to be able to store information. It appears to violate interoperability with our universe. So if we have when I say our universe, I mean the matter that we're made out of. We can have information written on our matter, but we can't write that information onto dark matter. I've speculated before, it'd be interesting science fiction, I guess some science fiction writers must have done this, to construct a story about beings that live in this dark matter. It could be whole civilizations. And perhaps the way in which they interact with one another... It's different to the way in which we interact with one another, but we can't communicate with them and they can't communicate with us precisely because the interaction, the physical interaction that's going on, operates via a different mechanism in some way, shape or form, which means that our matter and their matter is in, not interoperable. Okay, so I'm skipping all of that. And it's very, I think um, anyone who has the book should go and read that. I'm miss, skipping a number of pages there about this science fiction world and an illustration of um, the... Um, possibility of non-interoperability and what that would mean in such a universe. I'm picking it up where Chiara has written, quote, You have transversed several pages in order to understand the connection between physics and information. In what way are you now closer to understanding physical reality? 
you have discovered by considering the two counterfactual properties that characterize information media, a key feature of our universe, interoperability, without which what we have been calling information and communication thereafter would not be possible, nor would computers, let alone universal computers, that work the same way as they do in our universe. What you have just seen is an example of the explanatory power of interconnected counterfactual properties, this time all related to information. We can think of them as arranged in a pyramid structure. At the base you find the counterfactual properties of information media, that the flip and the copy operations are both possible on some physical systems, information media. On top of this, there is the interoperability of information media. Information is copyable from any information media to another no matter what type of physical support embodies it. At the very top is universality, the possibility of universal computers. Each counterfactual is needed for the higher level counterfactual. In turn, these counterfactuals enable a vast number of other transformations to be possible. All our information-related technology is based on the interoperability property. So are the most fascinating properties of life and intelligent life, from the possibility of self-reproduction to the possibility of thinking. Remove some of these counterfactuals and you wipe out all these properties too. What's more, by referring to information media and their counterfactual properties only, without referring to specific irrelevant details about the embodying systems, we're able to attain a greater degree of abstraction, going deeper than all our existing physical theories. If you remember at the outset, I noted that the elements in the Sentosa landscape are described by very different theories in the traditional conception, but with the view from counterfactuals, we understand the sense in which some of them are, in fact, very similar. They are all information media. The traditional conception of physics cannot express this fact, whereas the science of can and can't can do so, elegantly and simply. The approach with counterfactuals also frees information from subjectivity. When we say that some set of states can be copied, we do not need to refer to any conscious subject or observer performing the transformation. A simple chemical reaction where the structure of some crystal is replicated over and over again implements the copy operation, and it can do so in the absence of a guiding entity. The objective, counterfactual properties necessary to explain information, are remarkably elementary, and yet they have far-reaching ramifications. Whether you are sitting in a coffee shop drinking coffee while listening to your favourite music, sitting in your armchair scrolling through your phone or reading a book, or watching a beautiful sunset from your balcony, all these phenomena can occur because those two operations, the flip and the copy, are possible. And because of the interoperability of information media, both you and I are enjoying the far-reaching power of those counterfactuals right now. I, while writing these lines and putting a full stop here. You, while reading these very lines and turning the page to discover what's next. And that's the end of the chapter. End quote there. So this brings information into the understanding of physics at a fundamental level via the constructor theory of information. So rather than it being merely a highly emergent phenomena that really is only prior to this understanding, a property of some complicated emergent structure like a computer, we now see that it is fundamental. But as I like to say, lots of things that people think are emergent are actually also fundamental. P 
people <laughs> are one such thing. Okay, If off into the infinite future, as we expect, people are the thing that go about transforming the universe in some way, then that will be fundamental. That will be fundamental to the evolution of the universe. Their choices will be fundamental to the evolution of the universe. But here we have this idea that, in a more basic way, information is fundamental to the way in which the universe operates. The possibility that certain matter can actually hold on to information, information being the thing that can be flipped and can be copied, is something that means our universe has this special characteristic of allowing for information. And because it can allow for information, and it didn't have to be, it allows a universe in which computation is possible and universal computation is possible, and I would say, and therefore people are possible. Okay, so that's it for today. That's the end of chapter three. And next time we'll be on to chapter four, which is quantum information. So that'll be very interesting. But until then, bye-bye.